The following audio is from Grace City Church in San Diego, California. More information about Grace City Church is available at gracecitysd.com. When man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any as they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man, they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things, and the birds of heaven, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for your word. Uh, Lord, I pray that you will empower Randall as he comes and uh, speaks your word to us and pray that our hearts will be open and receptive to hear, hear what you have to say for us. Um, God, teach us about yourself and uh, about the world you made for us. In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen. All right. Thanks, Ethan. All right. Good morning, everyone. All right. Just like Ethan said, if you got your Bible this morning, we're going to be in Genesis chapter 6. And, um, you know, I was just want to, I want to say that this past week, it was really encouraging as I went into uh, our local Starbucks here off of Governor, and it was Friday, um, so I'm getting my, 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 my drink, and I turned around, and I saw uh, three guys in the corner studying the Bible together. Um, which I thought was awesome, you know. And so one of the things that we talked about this year is just being in the Word of God, being reading the Bible. Um, so if you haven't jumped in yet, you don't have a CBR journal, tell us. We want to get you one uh, because we want to all, as a church, be together reading through books like, like Genesis. And so uh, we're going to be continuing in our series, The Gospel in Genesis, and uh, if you're new with us, um, the, the word gospel just simply means good news, uh, good news. And so as we look at the Bible, we see the word gospel throughout, and you see it all the way through in Genesis. And we're looking at specifically today the life of Noah. Um, this is kind of the setting of, of Noah's life, and uh, we're in Genesis 6, 1 through 8. And what we see here is the wickedness of the world. Right, we've talked about it before in Genesis chapter 3 where there was a fall that happened and now we're seeing the, the effects of sin all the way to Genesis chapter 6. Um, and so here's the message today. As we look at this text, what do we pull from this? Uh, well, it's this, a reason for hope. A reason for hope. Right, like what's, what's the, the hope in this passage today? Because as we look at what the, the hope is, then I think that's where we're going to find that gospel thread, the good news that we need to hear today. Uh, in 2007, uh, Canadian philosopher Charles Taylor wrote an 896-page book called A Secular Age. Now, this book describes our world today. And the book specifically has been a hot topic for many theologians, philosophers, and columnists. Uh, Taylor's book tells of this cultural shift that has taken place um, the past several centuries. And that today, because of the influence of secularism, we no longer believe in God or the supernatural. And he calls our world now uh, disenchanted. 
disenchanted. Uh, but as, as much as we have adopted uh, Nietzsche's declaration, God is dead, and have tried to subtract the supernatural from our everyday lives, Taylor says we still can't shake this sneaking suspicion that we are missing something. That we're missing something. Taylor says, don't you feel it? Don't you have those moments of either foreboding or on the cusp elation where you can't shake that sense that there must be something more? What he calls this is the haunted imminence. This emptiness, this hole, this, this thing inside of us that says there's, there's got to be a God. There's got to be something more. See, it might be the very thing that brought you here this morning where you're asking yourself, is there a God? Now, why is this so important to us today? Because as Taylor and many others look at our culture, they've come to this conclusion that modern man is in desperate need of God. Something outside of the physical realm, a deep yearning and longing for a better world. But again, if we, if we buy into this idea that there is no God and that we're just here by chance, What's this thing that rattles around in us that feels like there should be a better world? What's our reasoning that there should be a better world? You see, we've been looking at the book of Genesis and the creation, and this is the creation of the cosmos, the universe, everything. And and what we've seen from the beginning is that there was a better world. There was something more. That in the beginning, God created everything good and that it was in perfect order and harmony. But then, like I said, came the fall in Genesis 3, and we've looked at that in this series. And now, Genesis 6, we come to this point where humanity is on this downward spiral because of what we talked about, sin. You know, we ask ourselves, well, what is sin? What is the root of sin? Well, it's that middle letter I. It's all about me. Let me cut God out of my life. I don't need God. And so it's all about me, sin. And so Oz Guinness says it like this. He says, through our disobedience to God, we've been alienated from God in his presence. So now we live east of Eden. We are away from the home we were given to live in. We are all prodigals now. We are all in a far country. Yet however far we go, there is always a longing for home that will not go away. We have been cut off, so there is always a homesickness that no other home can satisfy, a desire that no other satisfaction can fulfill. We are in need of hope. And so our text today is Genesis 6, 1 through 8. And as we look at this story, it's a little strange There's some things that are said that are like, what does that even mean? I mean, probably some of you who have been reading through the CBR journal and reading through the book of Genesis are saying, what is that? Right? Like there's parts of it that that don't make sense to us. And so we need to ask, what's the setting for the story of Noah? And so as we set up the story of Noah, I'm going to give you three points that help us understand the setting that Noah lived in. First, number one, it's an enchanted world. An enchanted world. Two, a violent 
humanity, and three, a righteous God. A righteous God. And so the first point, an enchanted world. Look at verses one through four. When man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw the daughters of man were attractive and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, my spirit shall not abide in man forever for he is flesh, his days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of God came into the daughters of man and they were born children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. Now, what do I mean by enchanted? Well, C.S. Lewis, who started out as a skeptic, an atheist, was a professor at Oxford University, became a Christian, and here's what he says. He says, do not attempt to water Christianity down. There must be no pretense that you can have it with the supernatural left out. So far as I can see, Christianity is precisely the one religion from which the miraculous cannot be separated. You must frankly argue for supernaturalism from the very outset. What does he mean from the very outset? From the book of Genesis. The, the thought that God created the world, the cosmos, the, the, the thought that there is something beyond the physical realm and we see it all throughout the book of Genesis. Right? We, can't, we can't get away from it. And again, as much as our culture and everything tries to push against it and say, that stuff's not real, go to Africa. Go to Haiti. Go to other parts of the world and tell them, that the supernatural is not real, and I guarantee you they'll laugh in your face. They will, because I've been there. Right? This stuff, whether we want to believe it or not, is, is there, and the Bible talks about it. And so I want to look at verses 2 through 4 for a second. It says, the sons of God saw the daughters of man, they were attractive, and then it goes, the Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, then the sons of God came, they bore children to them. There's so many questions about this text. There is so many questions about this. You're probably looking at that and you're saying, what is, what is this? See, it's been debated all throughout church history. And, and it starts with, first, the sons of God. Who are the sons of God? Some have argued that this is um, godly men. So these are the sons of God. But, um, and that it's just kind of this natural thing where they uh, started to marry women that weren't daughters of God, that weren't Christians or believers in God. And so this is what happened. But, but that, that argument doesn't stand. Because all throughout church history, what many believe is that the sons of God were angels, fallen angels, and that they had these relationships with humans and so that was the major consensus. Even Jewish writers wrote all the way back to the sons of God. And, and so what we see during the time of Noah was that there was a supernatural element happening within the earth that just kind of pointed to how messed up and fallen this world really is and was. And so that's, that's hard for some of us to believe today. And then others of us, I mean, you say that the Bible is boring. 
come on. Like, but this word for Nephilim is fallen ones or giants. Ezekiel 32, 27 talks about that. Here's the thing. I'm not going to spend a whole bunch of time on this. But to get some context, even of, of, for this verse, you can look at Jude 6, 7. You can write down 1 Peter 3, 19. But as I step back, here's what I have to come to the Bible and, and understand. I'm not going to be able to get everything and know what this is. There, there are theologians that have just kind of been like, this, I, we don't even understand all of this. So when you come to the Bible, you have to understand that there's, there's things in this world that are beyond putting in a test tube. And that's what we see here. There's a great podcast if you're looking for different like questions and things like that that you have about the Bible called Word Matters. And so if you're like, man, I got a bunch of questions kind of like this one that I'm not gonna spend a whole lot of time on today, but I just wanna know more, listen to that podcast, Word Matters. It's super helpful. But why is this in here? Why is this part in here? Why did I not just skip over this? Twofold, to show that the world is enchanted. Like, I don't see this stuff today. Well, yeah, but this is what we see in Genesis chapter six. And so the world is enchanted. God is real. There's more to this world than you can see or explain or put in a test tube. And these stories aren't just stories. They trace us back to our beginning and our need for God. What's this whole thing in here for? Because we need God. And you have to go all the way back to the beginning. And you trace all human lineage to say, okay, look at how messed up humanity is without God. This is how dark it got. It's some of us ask, is this real? Star Wars Episode 7, you know, there, there's the, the Force Awakens. See some fans here. And there's this part where Chewbacca and Han Solo meet Rey, who's the, 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 the hero for the first time. And her and her friend are in there and they're like, they see Chewbacca, they see Han Solo and, and she's like, Luke Skywalker, I thought he was a myth. And Han Solo looks back and says, it's true. The force, the Jedi, all of it, it's all true. And there's something in us that's like, oh yeah, yes. It's all true. I knew it. I knew it. You know what I mean? It's like, we watch a movie no historical background. No, no, like, you know, like, look in history and archaeology and all these types of things. We're like, oh, man, I just believe it. There's just something in me. It's just the force. You know what I mean? We're ready to believe the force than, more than we are the Bible. And I just want to say today, like, as we look at this, this is to show us that the world truly is the way that the Bible describes it. I had, to, I had to get to this place where I, I'm reading things and I'm like, I don't understand that. And I had to get to this place where I said, you know what? It's either God knows the world better than I do or I think I know the world better than God does. And I got to come under that thought of like, okay, maybe God knows more than I do and maybe the Bible explains more than I thought was possible. Right? 
And so that's the first part. But the second part is this, to show how corrupt the world is apart from God. To show how, see, we see the fall affecting every part of creation, angels, humans, the world has just become extremely corrupt. Extremely corrupt. And so that's where it starts. But then we get to the second part of violent humanity. Look at verse five. The Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. You know, why, why is this world so violent? Emotional, physical, psychological, it's violent. It's hurtful. It says that every thought and intention of the heart was godless. It was godless. It was self-centered. It was self-seeking. It's self-absorbed. Humanity in heart and in action had rejected God. And, and do you know what happens when we reject God? It's chaos. It's chaos. The, the, the byproduct that we see here was violence. There's this controversial study that was recently done by scientists at Notre Dame University. And they asked, are people in big modern societies more or less violent than those that have gone before, our forebears? And this is the answer they came up with. It's neither. It's neither. Michael Price uh, wrote about it. He said, people who lived in small bands in the past and had no more proclivity toward violence than we do today. The finding based on estimates of war casualties throughout history undercuts the popular argument that humans have become a more peaceful species over time thanks to advances in technology and governance. What he's saying here is hard for some to believe that within man, there's a violence that is there. And that as much as we try to hide it, it's still there. As much as our technology and our governance and all these things advance, it's still there. We can't shake it. This is a world that lives godless. See, and this was predicted by God back in Genesis 4 when Cain killed Abel. When Cain killed Abel, he says that there, there's going to be this, this repetitive thing that happens, this spiral. Violence is this natural byproduct that, that happens when we, we reject God. But what does God's presence do? Well, Oz Guinness talked about this when he talked about how the gospel came to Europe. When, when, when the message of Jesus came into Europe, here's what he said. He said that it gentled the barbarian Europeans. It gentled them. Now, what happened when, when God comes into your life? It gentles you. It, it makes you a different person. You see, what do we do to resolve the tension of anger in our hearts? Right? Because what do we see with the Cain and Abel story? We see this jealousy and this bitterness that turns into anger and rage, and he kills his brother. And let's not say that stuff doesn't happen today, right? I mean, it happens all the time. 
but it's just this like cycle, right, that happens in his life. And so what, what do we do with that? Right, you've been wronged, you've been violated, nothing? Right, like, ah, you just need to forgive him. I mean, is that what Jesus, just, just, just forgive? What do you do with that anger? What do you do with people like Hitler that commit atrocious acts of, of violence and then he commits suicide with no judge? Right? You, you look at this, I look at this, and, and here's the thing, we need something greater than ourselves to, to stop the violence, to stop the violence, to, to hold the violence accountable. We need a perfect judge. See, today, even when I say God as judge, people are like, man, that's a little hard to take in. Right, that's a little hard to take in, like God is judge. But here's the thing, he's a perfect judge. <laughs> he's a perfect judge. You know, like faulty court systems, people that get off, or any of those types of things. Right, we put, we put our, our hope in man. That's not going to resolve the anger in our hearts. But God says, don't put it in the hands of man. Don't even take it into your own hands. He says, put it into my hands. My hands. Miroslav Volf, theologian, said, imagine your community is attacked, family and friends killed, atrocities done, and, and you tell the survivors, you must forgive your enemies. Volf says, your point to them, we should not retaliate. Why not? Because God doesn't judge. I say the only means of prohibiting violence by us is to insist the violence is only legitimate when it comes from God. Violence thrives today, secretly nourished by the belief that God refuses to take the sword. Right, like, why was this world so violent? It's because it was, judgment was placed in the hands of man when it was only meant to be in the hands of God. Only in the hands of God. How's the only way that you can learn to forgive? It's when you say, man, at the end of the day, I'm not the judge. God is. We're all accountable to him. And so there are these people now who are looking at this violent humanity and God is this righteous God and he's looking down at all of the violence and terrible things that are happening. And so lastly, we find this, we find a righteous God. A righteous God. As, as humanity is on this downward spiral, we find a righteous God. Look at verses six through eight. It says, And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. There's a lot here. But what do we see? First is this, we see the pain of God. The pain of God. Look at verse six. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. This word for regretted is to groan in pain. God is groaning in pain as he is looking at the violence of man on the earth. And it says it grieved him. This is to hurt, like God physically hurting as he's watching 
humanity just spiral without him. And so what does this tell us about God? Timothy Keller says he didn't need us. God didn't need us. We saw that from the beginning. But once he made us, he knit his heart to us. He knit his heart to us. I don't know what a righteous God looks like. It says in Ezekiel 33, 11, say to them, as I live, declares the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways. For why will you die, O house of Israel? Why? Right, so there is this God who's pleading with humanity. Right, like you don't see it all through here, but God is pleading with humanity as he looks down on humanity, violent humanity, pleading because of his grace. He says, I don't want to bring judgment on you. See, how does this change your view about God? Do Do you see God suffering as he looks upon humanity? Nicholas Wolterstorff, a philosopher at Yale University, says this. He says, the tears of God are the meaning of history. If you don't see God suffering for our sins, you don't know what history is all about. He's saying that as you look at history all throughout, as you look at the scriptures all throughout, there is a God who is suffering on the other end. Why? Because he cares so deeply for humanity. He cares so deeply for you and me. And so what's next? We see grace. Because here's what really humanity deserved, right? Like we deserve to be blotted out. We deserve to be wiped out. Like that's, that's like for some of us here today, we say, I'm really patient. I'm a really kind guy. I'm a really loving person. All of these types of things. not even close to what God is. Yet God is at this point where he says, this is the deserved punishment. But then we see this, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Now what's this word for favor? In the Old Testament, it's the same word that we find in the New Testament for grace. He found grace. He found this undeserved Love from God. He found grace. See, why does this, what, what does this all point to? That there's hope. As dark as the world got and as much right as God had to destroy everything and everyone, instead he chose to have grace. You see, many of us today would ask, why did God only save Noah and his family? But as we think on God for a minute and just understanding that God's way different than me and he knows a whole lot more than me and he was there and I wasn't. (laughs) We see his grief. We see what he was willing to go through. We should ask, why did God save humanity at all? Why did he save humanity at all? It was grace. And we will look at this more next week. We're going to walk through this story of Noah and the flood and all of those things. And if you ask me, do you believe it? Yeah, I do. I do. And so we're going to walk through that together next week. But just some takeaways. 
What can we learn from this text today? Number one, take seriously God's holiness. Take seriously God's holiness. Do, do you see what this passage is all about? What it is, it's, it's showing this gap between us and God. There's this huge gap, right? Like us modern people, we have a very low view of God. In many ways, we think that God is like us. He's like me. And in many ways, we think that we have all the answers. Or I demand, or I deserve to have all the answers, right? But if there's a God in heaven that's far above me, that knows vastly more than me, then I have to come to this God and say, there are things that I don't understand and may never understand. You'd be okay with that. Isaiah 55, 8 says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. I had a conversation with a student last week. And he's been, we've been talking and having some conversation. And one of the things he came up to me and said, he said, he said, I stopped questioning some of the things that I just don't think I'll ever be able to understand. And I'm asking for help to believe. I'm asking for help to believe. And in some ways, that's, that's kind of where we start. It doesn't mean we don't ask questions. We should. We should. Keep asking. If you've got doubts, keep coming. Right? Keep exploring. That's a good thing. But we got to know that if there's a God who knows vastly more than us, then we're not, we're not going to be able to explain and understand all of his ways. It's not going to be able to, to be possible. So take seriously God's holiness and who he is. The second point, start with God's grace. And I'll add dot, 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 not your goodness. Start with God's grace, not your goodness. You know, a lot of the times, many times what we do is we approach God based on our own goodness. God, look at all the things I've done. Look at who I am. Look at how I've cleaned up my life. And so surely you've got to accept me. But I just want you to know that that's not the good news. And it's really not good news because when I think about it from my own life, I think, man, I, if that's how it works, I, got, I don't have a chance. I don't have a chance. There are so many things that rattle around in my heart and my mind. It's just like, I, I don't know how to clean that up. Lord, help me. That's, that's the thing, right? Get angry about this. Get upset about this. Prideful about this. Right? There are things, again, that we're just not putting out there on Instagram and Facebook that's just rattling around in our hearts. Because if I were to ask some of us and say, hey, who, has, who, who wants to volunteer this week? We're going to put your whole week up on the screen and we're just going to say, hey, you just had a great week. You're a really good person, right? You want, anybody want to volunteer to have their whole life up this week, just this week, up on the screen for everybody to see? Probably not. Probably not. And so that's the thing that we're talking about here. It's, but that's not how God is inviting us to come into relationship with him. This passage is pointing us to the opposite. People during Noah's day were sinful. But God is pointing us to the need for his grace. For his grace. Like I need 
God's loving grace. Jerry Bridges says this, he says, your worst days are never so bad that you are beyond the reach of God's grace and your best days are never so good that you are beyond the reach of God's grace. What's that mean? Every single day, I need to know that there's a God who loves me despite me. Despite me. And that I couldn't work hard enough or I couldn't be good enough to come into his presence. See, some of us think it's this, that we gotta work our way up to God. But the message of the Bible and what we see in Jesus and who Jesus is, is that he worked his way down to me. He worked his way down to me. That's when we talk, we're talking about God becoming a man. God becoming man. Like that, that again, hard to understand. I, I can't explain all the ins and outs of that. But do I believe it? Yes. Why? Because I need it. And you need it and we all need it. I love it when C.S. Lewis says, you know, he's like, you want to know why I believe the Bible? He says, because no person could ever make this stuff up. Seriously. <laughs> like, hold on. You, you, so it's just free grace? Like, God loves me not because of anything I've done, but that's what every other religion in the world says. It's only in Christianity that you find a God who says, no, believe in everything that's been done for you. Believe in everything that Jesus has done for you. And it's purely by grace that you come into his presence. Only religion in the world. Only one. By faith. Should shatter a lot of our categories. Right? See, the point of the Bible is this, that God is the only hero. And... um. I was talking with one uh, guy about this, you know, um, he's like, man, I'm reading through some of the Old Testament. Some of this stuff is just crazy. It's crazy. Like just what happens, how dark things get. I said, you know what? Um, the Bible is descriptive, not prescriptive in the Old Testament. Some of these it's descriptive in the sense that it's describing things that happened apart from God. Right. We just start like, he's like, why is Lamech got two wives? Is that like, I told you, it's not prescriptive. God already said what marriage was at the beginning. But now we got Lamech over here trying to reinvent marriage. Okay, and so that, that's like, that's, that's what happens. We get away from God's ways. We start to reinvent things in our own image. We start to do things our own way. And so again, start with God's grace. Start with what he's done. And then he's gonna draw you in and show you things that, this is what life was meant to be. All right, last, God, see God's heart. Do you see his grief? Ephesians 4.30 says, do, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. We were having a great conversation in men's uh, group a couple weeks ago. I said, do you, do, you, do you understand that you can grieve God? Like, that's just strange to me, right? Like, like that I can grieve God, but then, I said, think about it like this. It's, it's like I've got three kids. And there are things that my kids do when I watch them. And it's, it's really only hurting them, right? Like it's, it's going to hurt them. But you know what it does? My heart is so tied into them that it grieves me. That it grieves me. And so when God looks at you as his child... And he sees you going off on this path where you're saying it's all about me and it's all about what I want to do. 
and you're hurting yourself, do you know that God's saying my heart is so tied up with you that it grieves me and it hurts me? That's the God we serve. See, it causes him pain. And when I understand that, instead of running away from what God wants for my life, I start to run to what God wants for my life. Right? It's not like this, oh, bringing down the hammer, so that's what's really going to change me. Maybe sometimes, yeah, but really a lot of it is going to be through that relationship of just knowing that I'm hurting the heart of God. And so I'm going back and running towards him saying, this is what you want from me, God. And so I'm going to run towards that. And then you find fulfillment in life. Famous secular therapist and author Rollo May He tells in his book, My Quest for Beauty, about a time when he visited a Greek Orthodox monastery. They were celebrating Easter. He had recently been recovering from a nervous breakdown. And at the height of the Easter service, the people began to say, Christ is risen. May himself even said it. And then he said this, I was seized then by the moment, a moment of spiritual reality. What would it mean for the world if he had truly risen? What would it mean for the world if he had truly risen? What would it mean if, if God became man, lived a perfect life, died for my sins, rose from the dead, and says what he says on the cross, it is finished. That work, that striving to clean up your life, to become a good person, all of those things, I've nailed it all to the cross and all you've got to do is come to me, come to the foot of the cross, receive me for what I've done. What if it's true? That's the greatest hope we could ever have. You see, what was it that Noah had when it said that he had grace. Because in the next verse, it says that he was a a righteous person. Well, what we see, the whole message of the Bible, it's, it's cohesive, is that righteousness only comes from God himself. Wasn't righteous because he was just better. You're gonna see it in Genesis 9. You'll be like, that's Noah? The only time he talks in the Bible, that's what he says? And that's what he does? Okay. Righteous man, only because of God. God's the only hero. And so today, if you're struggling, you're saying, man, I just need some hope. I see this wickedness all around. I see these things all around me, and I've just kind of fallen into it myself. I just want you to know that there's hope in Jesus Christ. All the way back, In the book of Genesis, we see it, and it's offered to you today. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for your word. We thank you for how you work in our lives. There are things that we just don't understand, and and so we come to you, Lord. I just confess I'm no expert. I'm just a servant of yours. I just want to... Be faithful to your text and to your word, Lord. I pray that you speak and you help us to understand. 
open our eyes to things that we just don't see right now. Help us to know that you're there. I know there are people that are here today that are searching and just saying, are you there, God? I need to know. And I pray that you show yourself for who you are and show your heart for, for the people here today. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this resource from Grace City Church. If you found this helpful, feel free to share it and enjoy more resources at gracecitysd.com. Grace City Church exists to equip people with the gospel for everyday life.